Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It is the 25th of August, 22, and today we're looking at safeguarding and why it doesn't work in the church especially. So hi everyone, welcome back to the Sacred Musings podcast, or welcome if you're joining me for the first time. I think I've had a few new uh, listeners or viewers joining in over the last few weeks while I've been away. Um, We had a nice holiday, thank you for asking. So um, yeah, back again. This is the first one in about three weeks. Um, Before we get into the topic of safeguarding, as always, there's just uh, one or two things I'd like to share. There's been a lot that's happened over the last um, few weeks, so I don't really want to go through everything. But I just wanted to highlight a couple of things which I thought were really interesting. Um, So there were a couple of articles, one on unheard and one on spiked, which were kind of talking about how the the cost of living crisis and everything that we're going through and that we're going to be going through as a country over the coming months is manufactured by our elites. So on spiked, this was written by Fraser Myers. Uh, which uh, which the title is A Cost of Living Crisis Made by Our Elites. And um, on Unheard, it was by Thomas Farsi saying civil disobedience is coming. And I'll put the links to both of those articles down below. Um, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, people are really beginning to pick up on this idea that everything that we're going through is because of uh, decisions that the government have made over the past, you know, let's say 20 odd years and maybe around 1997, you know, with the new Labour and so on. I think that things really began to change. And um, I thought it, it's interesting that people are beginning to pick up on this now, you know, that at the moment, un, you know, unheard and spiked and not, not exactly, you know, mainstream publications. But I think people are beginning to look to this kind of thing more and more. It seems to me that most people just don't really have that much of an interest in politics. I think most people just kind of realise that what happens in Westminster is sort of a bit of a bubble. But as long as they can get on with their lives, you know, as long as they can have a job, as long as they can, you know, watch Netflix or watch the TV, as long as they can go to the pub, whatever it may be, then what happens in Westminster doesn't really affect them too much. What's happening over the coming uh, coming months is going to affect everyone. I mean, of course, the lockdown's affected everyone. But it, being asked to stay at home, I think, was a big thing. But when you can't afford to pay your electricity bill, when you've got to choose between heating your house and eating, um, all of that kind of thing, you know, when you can't, when there are blackouts, maybe because there's not enough power, all of that stuff, people are going to start asking big questions of the government. And I'm afraid the government are not going to have any answers for them because all of these things, I think, are directly attributable to policies which the government have made over over the years. And this is not a party political thing. You know, this is just the entire political class um, would have made the same decisions. You know, when it comes to net zero, for example, when it comes to, you know, the ban on fracking, not investing in nuclear power, all of that kind of stuff has been pursuing a particular political agenda, not a party political agenda, but uh, this kind of political groupthink mindset at the expense of dealing with uh, the things which ordinary people need and, you know, just looking after the people of this country. So I think the chickens are coming home to roost and I'm hopeful that this coming winter and this coming, you know, the coming few years 
will inspire people to actually ask questions of the establishment and say, well, why are we being fed this when it's causing blackouts, when it's causing, you know, what, why are we paying so much for green energy when it's not delivering and, and so on? You know, we, look, we need to be looking into all of this. And I think when people are struggling, that's the time when, you know, it's, it's going to be made clear who's really on our side and who has actually been pursuing a political agenda. Um, so I thought that was one interesting thing. Another interesting thing, which I um, I did, I think Bernie Spofforth, um, I think on Twitter, did a little thread about uh, Thames water. And um, I, I haven't found the link to it. But um, if you look on her, scroll on her Twitter feed um, back a, a couple of weeks. Um, but anyway, it, it, this information is all publicly available anyway. It's Thames water. They are publicly, not publicly owned, sorry, they are privately. It's a private company and they have shareholders. The majority shareholders are a lot of them is are pension um, pension funds for various some of them in, in other countries. Um, for example, one in Canada, I think, is the majority shareholder of Thames Water, uh, the university superannuation scheme, which is for people who have been um, staff and and um, faculty at universities for their pensions. And she was asking the question, why is it? that uh, these pension schemes, you know, that, that Thames Water customers, the money that, that they are paying on bills is not going into repairing the network, ensuring that we have reservoirs, ensuring that the water supply is, you know, is there, but is actually going to providing pensions for people. You know, that, that seems a bit balmy. And that seems, that seems balmy to me. I didn't realise that this was actually happening, but it doesn't surprise me. And um, it, it just struck me, you know, I can see why people say that capitalism is the problem, because this is what it leads to. And it, it doesn't make any sense to me, at least, that I think, you know, that a, a, a water company should be there as a utility, should be there to provide a service to customers. And yeah, you know, they need to charge, obviously. They need to cover their costs. They need to pay their staff. They need to supply water. They need to invest in it. But does that money need to be going to pension funds for people? You know, that they, they're not growing a business in the same way that, I don't know, Microsoft or Apple. Um, I can see why it might make sense for them to have shareholders. But for a water company, now, it strikes me that a water company would be better off as a charity in some respects because they shouldn't be profit making. You know, they should just be seeking to provide a service. So um, that was that was another thought that I had. But again, I think the answer here is not nationalisation, because when you take everything under a national banner um, and people have made the, the comments that, you know, water was privatised in England and Wales, not in Scotland and Northern Ireland. It's still nationalised and it's not better there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these kind of funny situations where I think you just need people to do the right thing rather than do the, you know, do something balmy. Anyway, that was just another thought. Do let me know what you think, by the way, um, on Telegram or YouTube comments or uh, email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com if you'd like to, to share any thoughts about all of this. So there's one other thing that I wanted to mention. 
I've been getting a bit frustrated over the last few weeks um, watching shows like, you know, Andrew Doyle on, on Free Speech Nation and about, um, you know, Trigonometry, I've mentioned this, and uh, Spike to the Spike podcast, and amongst others. Now, talking about Salman Rushdie, Salman Rushdie, for those who don't know, was um, stabbed in, uh, I think, in New York a few weeks ago um, by an Islamist. And, um, of course, he had the fat fatwa uh, pr pronounced on him way back in the, I think, in the 1980s for the Satanic Verses. So, you know, he's been no stranger to controversy. And people have been saying, well, this is why we need to defend free speech, because Salman Rushdie, you know, he, he needs to have the freedom to defend this. I think what frustrates me about people like, you know, people saying we need to defend free speech is that they never go one step back and say, why is it that the Islamist extremists, you know, the Islamists do not believe in free speech? The reason they do not believe in free speech is because they believe there is a superior value, which is Muhammad, which comes from God, you know, which is they do not believe it is right to offend Muhammad. And so it, and that comes from God. And the thing is, you are never going to persuade people like that of the value of free speech because they believe they have superior values from God. You can argue till you're blue in the face with people like that, but because it is a religious commitment, you will not sway them, or I think by and large, you will not sway them. You may believe that free speech is the best thing, and I believe that free speech is the best thing, and particularly the last two or three years, I've come to appreciate that in the way that I never did before in my life. At the same time, you have to appreciate that free speech comes from somewhere, it comes from a place of wanting everyone to have the opportunity to speak, you know, of, of, of not treating someone badly because they hold wrong opinions, but actually wanting to persuade them, wanting to use words rather than violence to, to, to bring them round to your point of view and acknowledging that, you know, we may get things wrong from time to time, you know, acknowledging that the best way of resolving that is by discussion. That comes from a Christian view of the world, not an Islamic view of the world. And that is the root of the problem. That's the thing which is not being discussed, is actually saying which worldview gives rise to free speech, rather than saying we need to, to defend free speech itself. We need to be saying we need to defend Christianity, because Christianity is the only worldview which gives rise to free speech. And more than that is the only thing which will actually be able to have an influence on, um, on Islamists. Because I believe that you know, God is there, God can bring people to him, God can convert uh, anyone, and that actually you know, it is a religious problem, needs a religious solution. So this is why that what I wanted to say is that values are not enough. You know, we can talk about Western values, we can talk about democracy, we can talk about free speech and defending those. And I think, yeah, they need to be defended and they need to be taught. But unless we teach the, the value system, Christianity, which gave rise to free speech, which gave rise to democracy, all of our efforts will be in vain. And if you want to know more about how Christianity gave rise to those things... And I know I've recommended it a lot, but Tom Holland's book Dominion is one of the best things that you could read about how everything in Western society ultimately owes 
um, to Christianity, everything good. And that's why that, you know, we need Christianity. We don't just need values, but we need Christianity to actually to actually um, make sense and move forward in our society. So that's what I wanted to say, that, you know, values are not enough, that we actually need, we need God, we need Christianity. Um, so let's move on now then to the main section of the podcast where we're going to be looking at safeguarding and why it is that safeguarding is failing. So what I want to do in the main section today is talk about why safeguarding doesn't work. Now I'm particularly talking about safeguarding in the church here that I think actually in secular uh, society safeguarding does have a place um, but I'm not really going to talk about that. Uh, I want to talk about safeguarding specifically in the church Um, and as you will probably know Safeguarding has had some real problems uh, in the church, which we'll get into in a moment. But I'll just tell, uh, start out by telling you um, the state of things when it comes to training and what have you in the church. Um, so this has certainly been the case since I was ordained back in uh, 2014, so eight years ago now, um, that all clergy are expected to attend safeguarding training as part of their post-ordination training and to attend regular uh, refresher training. So for, for me, as, um, as I am ordained, even though I don't have a license, I've got permission to officiate, I still need to attend uh, safeguarding training, I think every three years, in order for me to, to, carry, uh, to carry out my duties. The, the um, diocese have basically said, if you don't attend safeguarding training, then that's, that's, uh, that's it, you know, that you can't minister. Um, so it's necessary for everyone to attend uh, safeguarding training. Uh, add to that, anyone who works with children or vulnerable adults uh, in the church is expected to attend safeguarding training. For example, youth leaders, uh, not necessarily on um, uh, in person, but there is a kind of national safeguarding training website portal now. And so a number of um, our the people who help out with holiday clubs or youth club or whatever have had to go online and do their safeguarding training on the Internet. Um, so that's, um, yeah, that's quite a big thing. And there's a national Church of England safeguarding team and every diocese has its own safeguarding procedures. So it's a really big thing in the Church of England. So how do they keep seeming to get it wrong. Just to give you one example, I could give many. Uh, the case of um, Matthew Innocen or Matt Innocen. He was, um, well, he's actually ordained. He became ordained, but in as a child, he was abused by a priest. And um, he raised this as a, a safeguarding complaint. I think uh, not at the time, but later he raised this with the bishop um, and it sort of went to the Archbishop of York, It went, you know, um, which I think was John Sentimer at the time and so on. And they just kept on passing the buck. And um, there's the headline, which if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see uh, sex abuse survivor Matthew Innocent criticises the inaction of senior clerics in BBC programme. That was an article in the Church Times from um, 2018. So, you know, the, the, this has been going on for a very long time. That It seems 
when there's genuine abuse, often it just kind of gets covered up. It gets, you know, people look the other way, people pass the buck, people don't don't deal with it. Uh, and this has been, this is just endemic in the Church of England, you know, that people who've been abused don't get justice, whereas the people who've been abusers will just be allowed to either, you know, resign quietly or carry on. Which kind of brings me to the the story which inspired me to talk about this, which um, this was a story uh, which I saw uh, at the beginning of August about Christchurch Fullwood. Um, this was in the Sheffield Star. Um, and this is, the, the headline was, Christchurch Fullwood, safeguarding officer at Sheffield Church resigned after inappropriate relationship. Um, now, just before I read out a little bit of the um, the article, just a little excerpt, just to say that Christchurch Fullwood is a church which is, uh, I've never been there, but some of the people I trained with at college came from from this church, or I think from a plant uh, from this church. It is known in my circles as a good, solid Bible teaching church. Uh, actually, um, the the quote that I'm going to read mentions the vicar at the time, Paul Williams. Um, I did meet him once at a conference that I went on. He was speaking there and he seemed like a nice chap. Um, so, you know, it, it's it, it's one of the known churches. This is not some kind of liberal, you know, wishy-washy church who don't believe in the Bible or anything like that. This is, you know, in my circles at least, this would be considered one of the, you know, the creme de la creme. Um, which I think just goes to show how being creme de la creme is not um, a guarantee of anything. And in fact, we shouldn't really have those categories. But anyway, let me just read you what the, uh, the article said. He resigned in 2018 after details of an inappropriate relationship with a young female member of the congregation emerged. It also reveals how in 2015, Mr Cubmore had admitted to the then vicar, Canon Paul Williams, an earlier incident involving a different female member of the congregation to whom he had sent an image of himself by text message. Although he was asked to step back temporarily from leading services, no formal action was taken at the time, nor were any records made. When the second relationship came to light, Mr Cubmore was simply allowed to resign without any investigation or disciplinary action at the time. So this chap, who was a, a safeguarding officer at Christchurch Fullwood, was tw had twice admitted being in an, an inappropriate relationship or doing something inappropriate, i.e. sending a text message, a picture of himself, or touching, in the, the second case, of a, a young woman. And it, it just seems like nothing was done, really. He was just allowed to resign. It wasn't, uh, records were not made, it wasn't um, passed on to the appropriate authorities, and so on. How can this kind of thing happen, in, especially in a church which believes in the Bible and believes, you know, all of the things that we should be believing about sin, supposedly? So that's the question, you know, why do churches not treat safeguarding seriously, despite having all of the, despite in this case, in Fullwood's case, having a safeguarding officer? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to look at a question first, which is how sinful 
is sin. I think the root of the problem goes to the view that churches have of sin. I think many churches, um, perhaps even unconsciously, and in fact I'm sure it is unconscious, hold a deficient view of sin. So sin in most churches that, that I've been a part of, we tend to explain it and see it as the bad things that we do. Uh, as in, if, you, if you're trying to explain it to someone, then, you know, sin is, well, it's, it's the bad things that we do. So you might think of bad thoughts, even, or bad words or bad actions, um, otherwise known as sins of commission. So it's the things that we actually do to harm another person or things against God, you know, where we, we transgress uh, his laws. Now, I think that that is OK as far as it goes. But I think there are a couple of things that tend to get underemphasized or even left out completely. The first one is um, the character of God. So God's holiness and the consequent anger or wrath in the old fashioned word against sin. The Bible uses the word wrath, um, but we might say anger. Um, that is that God is angry at sin. Now, this is a deeply unpopular message today that, you know, people do not like to think about God being angry at all. But I think even in churches like Fullwood, which would believe in, in the wrath of God, I don't think people often think about how God, our sin, our sin, my personal sin, has provoked God's anger. Um, we'll come on to that in a moment. We'll come back to that. The second thing which I think gets uh, underemphasized or left out is that sin is not just the bad things we do, but is equally the good things that we don't do. Which in, um, again, if we think sins of commission was the things we do do, sins of omission is the things we don't do. So if, you, you know, you, you think God wants us to love our neighbour as ourselves, that doesn't simply mean avoiding doing bad things to them, but it means actually doing good things to them. So, you know, it's not enough simply to, um, as think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example, you know, that the, um, the, the problem was with the first two, the priest and the Levite who passed by, they left the man on, you know, naked and bleeding. They didn't do anything to harm him, but they didn't do what they could to actually help him. That was their problem. So their problem was not a sin of commission, it was a sin of omission. They didn't do what they could to love him and to help him. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's that second category of sin, which is far, far bigger than the first. You know, the things we, we, um, we do against others, you know, the times when we don't speak kindly or when we are a bit grumpy or, you know, whatever it might be. There are many, many ways of, of sin, of course. Uh, but those are much smaller than the way that we don't actually love other people in the way that we should. So this, by leaving out this, you know, this category of sin, if you like, we've left out a whole massive amount that, that actually we, we don't do. Um, and we've made sin much smaller. There's the problem. So how did this happen? How could we have got to the point 
where sin has become a much smaller thing than it should be. I think I mean, I've talked about this before. Uh, I mentioned this in the um, How the Church of England Went Woke. I did a video on this um, a few weeks ago looking at Calvin Robinson and, and that situation. So I'll just quickly do a little refresher about that if you haven't seen it. I think part of the problem was in the year 2000, the Church of England produced a new um, liturgical resource called Common Worship, which is basically most churches use now for their regular day-by-day, um, week-by-week services. And the problem is with Common Worship that it really doesn't emphasise uh, our sinfulness. It doesn't emphasise God's anger and wrath. It doesn't emphasise the fact that we leave things undone that we should do. If you compare the confessions, for example, from the Book of Common Prayer to Common Worship, then you can see just how different they are. And, you know, we've now been living in a church which has been using Common Worship for 20 odd years. So, you know, those confessions have started to make a difference. And I think, you know, the thing is, as James K. A. Smith, as James K. A. Smith points out, um, he did a book. Um, was it "You Are What You Love"? Something like that. That you know what we do regularly goes in. You know that that liturgy is important because by repeating something, it, it goes in and you internalize it. And by internalizing the the confessions from common worship rather than the Book of Common Prayer, we've internalized the fact that sin is not really that big of a deal. And that um, that actually God is not really that angry with us and that forgiveness is just, you know, well, God forgives us. So that's all good, isn't it? Um, and um, yeah, there are other things, too. So the Book of Common Prayer in the communion, you should include the Ten Commandments. Um, sometimes in the modern language uh, update, you can include the summary of the law, which we tend to do uh, in our midweek service. Um, the summary of the law being, you know, love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. But you should include one of those. Um, and there are other things too, like the commination service. The commination service uh, from the Book of Common Prayer, which should be used on Ash Wednesday, which um, is subtitled A Denouncing of God's Anger and Judgments Against Sinners, which is just taking bits from uh, the Old Testament, from the law, and I think um, bits from the New Testament, and just saying, you know, this is how much God hates sin. And this is the judgment and the curse of God against sin and, and sinners. Um, because we need reminding. And this is the thing, you know, the Book of Common Prayer, you could not use the Book of Common Prayer without coming away with the very, very strong uh, notion that God hates sin. And that, yes, God has provided a way for us to be made right with him through Jesus Christ. And that's amazing that's wonderful but it is not our own effort you know that actually our own efforts are like filthy rags um but you know we are low and god is high you know that's the way it should be and that comes across very clearly in the book of common prayer much less so in common worship and i think even in churches which you know focus very much on on the bible and biblical preaching i think this message of of sin is you know, they've begun to internalise the other message as well. But by not using the Book of Common Prayer and, and the, the theology, the message of the Book of Common Prayer. So moving on from the Book of Common Prayer, I think is one key thing. A couple of other things are um, that you know, we've forgotten that behind 
every command that God gives is the, the supreme command to love God and to love our neighbour. And I don't think we've reflected on that enough. Now, I recently did a series on the Ten Commandments on my other channel on Understand the Bible. And it was really eye-opening to me to, to think about every commandment through the lens of love and see how, you know, think about, you know, do not murder, for example. Do not murder is the commandment. But does that mean that it's okay to beat someone within an inch of their life but not actually kill them? No, of course it doesn't. You know, what God intended with the commandment is to say, yes, do not murder, do promote life, treat your neighbour well, love him or her, do what's best for, for him or her. That is what he's intended in the commandment, and that's what we're intended to think and to, to do. You know, so do not murder is kind of like the limit on this side, but there's a whole other side which we're supposed to, to think about and to, to do instead. And that's what we haven't done as a church. I think we just don't think about how God wants us to actually act. We just think in terms of how God doesn't want us to act, uh, which is not enough. You know, that God actually wants us to do stuff, not just to avoid doing the wrong stuff, if that makes sense. And I think the final thing is there, there is an emphasis, a kind of overemphasis on forgiveness. Now, you might be thinking, hold on a second, Phil, you know, surely forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian faith. And it is, it's very much at the heart of the Christian faith. But I think we have turned this forgiveness into um, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And uh, we looked at this a little bit um, a few weeks ago in um, about uh, when I was looking at Mike Ovi's address from GAFCON 2. I can't remember which podcast that was from um, two or three podcasts ago. But let me just quote you what Bonhoeffer said. Um, this is from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Um, this is what he said about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he goes on, and I'd love to quote you the whole thing, but for the sake of brevity, I'll, I, I won't. But I think this is one of the, the, probably the best thing that Bonhoeffer ever said. Cheap grace, I think he really grasped what it meant. That, uh, and, and it's funny how the, the Western church has just gone on to, to embrace this kind of cheap grace, really, I think. That, you know, we, we say, don't worry, God forgives you. And therefore, we completely undermine what it means to actually be forgiven. You know, we undermine the fact that God wants us to live holy lives rather than just simply carry on as we are. We undermine the fact that, you know, God is just and punishes sin. We know that that punishment fell on Jesus Christ, but we are not grateful and loving to God for the fact that that punishment fell on Jesus Christ and not on us, because we don't really see our sin as being too much of a problem. That is the problem with cheap grace. Uh, I think Bonhoeffer was really foresight, um, had a lot of foresight uh, in what he wrote and a lot of wisdom there. And um, I refer you back to what Mike Ovey said about cheap grace uh, from a few weeks ago from his GAFCON address.
So what happens then when grace is cheap? What happens when the church kind of internalizes this message of cheap grace? Uh, there, I think there are three effects that I've that I've identified. Um, maybe you can think of, of more or think of some more examples. Um, but the first thing is that we lose the horror of sin. I think we are supposed to to recoil at um, sin, at the horror of it, because although you know we know that you know we are all sinners, that you know actually if if sin is only about avoiding doing bad things to other people, then it's you know yes sin may be may be bad, but it's not that bad. But actually, if we're supposed to love other people and do good to them, then when we treat other people badly, we have fallen a very long way. And I think that's what we've lost, just the, the, the horror of how far we have fallen when we treat other people badly. And I think you can see this, for example, in um, I'm Jonathan Fletcher. So Jonathan Fletcher, I've mentioned him on the podcast before, but he was a, the vicar of Emmanuel Church Wimbledon up until 2012 and it, it transpired after he'd retired that he had done some pretty bad things namely administering naked beatings to young men in a sort of um a, like a parody of a um discipleship group you know if you if you misbehave or beat you with a slipper naked on your you know in your bum sort of thing and um and there was this kind of um attitude i think in some of the circles that i'm i i saw which were almost wanting to excuse jonathan fletcher and say well you know it could have happened to any one of us you know we're all sinners you know let he who is without sin cast the first stone and you know in one sense you kind of think well yes we're all sinners and let he who is without sin and so on on another hand what he did was terrible and there was no acknowledgement that what he did was actually you know dreadful it it was an abomination you know to do what he did to abuse people in that way so we've we've you know when grace is cheap we lose the horror of what sin actually is the second thing is that we make forgiveness too easy i know that you know we forgiveness is as i said at the heart of the Christian faith but when forgiveness is is easy then again it, it, it minimizes sin it it completely you know sin is so bad that God had to send Jesus to die on a cross horribly for our sin that's how bad sin is that's how much it matters to God it came at a, a huge cost the price of his only son and we make forgiveness cheap at our peril. You know that, as um, I think people have observed, free does not mean cheap. You know the fact that it's grace, the fact that it's free, does not mean that it came at no cost, not to God anyway. You know, it came at the price of His Son. And you know, we completely overlook that when we say, "Oh, it's all right." You know, you've you may have abused a young woman, you may have abused young men, but God forgives us, so you know it's all okay don't worry and this is why abusers are allowed to quietly resign and move on rather than face the consequences rather than you know there being a proper investigation rather than it being referred to the police and so on 
you know, that we think, oh, well, God forgives. You've said sorry. So, you know, you don't have to face any consequences. And and that is not the way that it works. You know, that um, that's not how repentance works. That repentance is a, you know, um, a deep kind of contrition for what we've done and a, recognize, and a recognizing. I think someone who is genuinely repentant, I think, who had done something like that, should acknowledge that there needed to be consequences and should accept the punishment even if we know that we're not going to be punished in a in an eternal sense um, because of Jesus, you know, we do need to accept that there are consequences to sin, especially of this kind of egregious kind of abuse. Um, this is a complicated topic and I'm sure there's more to say. I don't want to make all of this sound like, you know, forgiveness is, is, is impossible because, of course, that's not the case. Um, but um, we'll, we'll come on to come on to this more in a, in a moment in the, the final um, uh, final slide. Um, so the third thing then I think cheap grace does is it means that victims are overlooked. And it means that the experience of victims like Matt Innocent and others who have been horribly abused as children or you know, in the past, they just don't get justice as they should. And it's one of the things which I find most difficult about the whole um, problems with safeguarding in the church, that the people who we should be treating well, you know, the victims are the ones who are treated terribly, whereas the ones who've perpetrated it, you know, kind of get away with it and, you know, are, are fine. Um, sometimes that, is, that seems to be the case. That's, that's terrible, you know, that actually the people who have suffered abuse should be, um, you know, the ones who are listened to. And you know, that doesn't mean we should always believe anyone who says that they've been abused. Obviously not. Um, but it should always be treated seriously and investigated and, you know, getting to the truth. And you know, sadly, I have. Well, I mean, think about the example of Fort Forward. And I, I will not name names to protect the innocent and, and what have you, but I've seen this kind of thing happening in churches that I know, is that, you know, they may have the safeguarding posters up on the, the doors, they may have safeguarding officers, they may be ticking all of the boxes, but when something actually happens, the person who, who did it, who actually perpetrated whatever it was is nothing is done and they're just allowed to get on with it and they say well it's okay they've said sorry they're forgiven well the the victim is left kind of scared and frightened and messed up and they're not given support and that is a disgrace to the gospel and um that is the um that's the problem with cheap grace The final thing that I wanted to say is just that safeguarding really shouldn't be necessary in church. That this is, um, you know, if if churches taught and believed, you know, basic biblical teaching about sin and about holiness, there wouldn't be any need for safeguarding. So let me just read you a couple of passages that uh, that talk about this. So this is. Um, the Apostle Paul from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 7 in the New Testament. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, 
not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So there we have uh, the Apostle Paul saying, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. This is how we should live, not in passionate lust, you know, not in sexual immorality, but in a way which is holy and honourable in a right way instead. So you see, he says, you know, we shouldn't go down the, the way of sexual immorality. Definitely, that's terrible. Do not go down that way. You should not wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. But you should do, be, you know, control your body. You should do what is right, holy, honourable. And that could be, you know, yes, look after them, help them, love them. That's what you should be doing instead. That's what, uh, that's what Paul is saying. Live a holy life. You know, you mustn't live uh, an impure life. That's the wrong thing. Live a holy life. And, you know, the fact that teachers, people like Jonathan Fletcher and others, or safeguarding officers, you know, those who are supposedly in positions of authority should not be living up this kind of teaching in their own lives, I think says to me that I don't think they even know God really, if they're not living this and knowing again that, you know, we all fall short in many ways all of the time. Of course we do. But, you know, to actually do something to abuse, to wrong and take advantage of someone else, that's, you know, not just a little bit wrong. That's very wrong. And Paul says, no, you shouldn't be any of that. And the fact that this is happening in, in church leaders, you know, that you will get some instances of this. Of course, you have, you know, all through history, there have been examples of church leaders who've fallen in this way. But the fact that it seems to be so widespread at the moment suggests that there is a, a real deep problem. Just one more passage to look at um, before we move on. This is from Titus chapter 2, again, the Apostle Paul. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So there we have the grace of God which teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's actually the, the grace of God is the engine room of our holiness. And this is something that I think is, is there throughout the New Testament. You know, in the Christian life, God's grace in forgiving us is actually, uh, it, it kind of empowers us to live and walk more and more in the ways of holiness as we see the horror of our sin and the way that we've treated God and treated other people. And as we see the way that God has forgiven us for that, um, then it, it means that actually we want to live more and more in God's ways. And, you know, and we see the goodness of God's ways in doing it as we, we live. So this is the thing that, you know, if we really understand God's grace, then we understand how terrible sin is. And we understand how good it is, how God wants us to live a holy life where we love him and love others. So grace should never be cheap. Grace is actually the thing which which drives 
doing what is right. So safeguarding shouldn't be necessary in church because you know, a church that was doing what is right in you know, the teaching about grace, teaching about sin and God's holiness and all of those things shouldn't need safeguarding because people should start to be doing the right things anyway. This isn't to say, I think, you know, we shouldn't, we should. And, you know, we should be on the lookout for one another because we know that we're all sinners. And, you know, we should, if someone is doing something actually wrong, then we should be horrified by that. You know, if someone is actually abusing someone else or making sexual jokes or what have you, we should be able to, you know, take them aside, have the boldness to take them aside and sit down with them, you know, say, what does, this is what the Bible says, you know, let's pray about it, let's, you know, and, and we should be able to deal with these things without the need for to have a whole big red tape system of safeguarding, which evidently is not working. And that, that's just what I wanted to say. This is why safeguarding is not working. It's not going to work unless you really believe that what's happening is wrong. You know, if you have a kind of cheap grace system of forgiveness, then it's, it's never, it's never going to make a dent. And ironically, I think the final thing is that this is why I think safeguarding to an extent works in the secular world, because I think the secular world doesn't have that cheap grace sort of forgiveness that the church has and um, ironically I think it actually means that um, sin uh, you know is kind of dealt with perhaps a bit more effectively not all the time um, but I think the church has a unique problem uh, at the moment when it comes to safeguarding and that's why you know no safeguarding initiative is actually going to work without getting back to this biblical teaching about sin holiness repentance and, and all and grace all of those things um so anyway i appreciate that this has been um quite a long seg segment i hope that it's made sense um there's a lot more that i i could say and i, I hope i will come on to let me know if there's anything that you'd need clarified or any any points and i can always come back to that in a future session um and you can do that on telegram or you can do that through um, with YouTube comments or email me through at sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. So let's move on now anyway to the final section. We're just going to look briefly at a reflection from the Bible. So we're going to finish the podcast with a reflection from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 to 15. Now, I've chosen this passage. I know before I went on the holiday, we started looking at the Psalms and, and what have you. But I just um, occasionally I see something or watch something, you know, whatever, which makes me think. And this passage is based on or was inspired by a video by Awaken with JP, you know, the American uh, comedian who has his own YouTube channel. And he's been really switched on to everything that's happening. Um, and he did a video a few days ago called Why I Changed My Mind About Evil. So I don't think he is a Christian or he would call himself a Christian, but he's certainly been moving in that direction. You know, he basically acknowledged that um, the he realised that evil existed and I think Satan existed um, and God existed in a way that he hadn't appreciated before. And it's quite an interesting video. I wouldn't take um, theology advice from him, 
but I thought it was an interesting video, kind of thought-provoking nonetheless. But he quoted from this passage from the Bible, um, but he didn't actually say it was a quote from the Bible. So I thought what I would do is I would um, actually have a reflection on the actual passage, um, because uh, sort of in context, just to explain uh, what it was coming from. So let me read it out. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 to 15. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So let's just put this into context. Paul is writing to a church who were being uh, led astray or thrown into confusion by what he terms, or perhaps what they term themselves, super apostles. People who uh, preached a kind of biblical gospel message, but it was not the authentic gospel message which Paul proclaimed. And what he is saying is that you know, he is the, the apostle. He's the one who's been commissioned by Jesus. These people are imposters. Now, they're not working for God. They're working for the other side. And they're coming in and throwing people into confusion. And that's their, that's their, what they're there for, you know, that to actually throw people into confusion rather than lead them towards God. You know, they're leading people away from God. Um, and, um, and he says, that's why he says such people are false apostles. They, they claim to be apostles. They claim to be people who are sent by God, but they are not. He says they are deceitful workers. They're liars. They are masquerading as apostles of Christ. They are simply pretending. And he says uh, it's, um, it's no wonder and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light and that is the quote which awaken with jp um, picked up on and i think this is a really helpful insight into how satan and evil works it never comes wrapped in a label that says this is evil you know that i think so many times people go along with what's wrong because it seems to be right now think about the lockdowns, uh, for example, you know, stay at home, save lives and protect the NHS, save lives. Now, who wouldn't want to, to save the NHS and to protect lives? And that's how it gets in, because actually, you know, I think it was wrong to ask people to do that for reasons which we've been over um, many times before. Um, but this is, you know, because it, it came wrapped in in a good, positive thing then people went along with it i think it's the same with the the world economic forum and so on <clears throat> all of their plans for sustainability and and so on you know if you if you on a superficial level i think you could say yeah i think they they are trying to do what's right and good they are trying to solve the world's problems and it's the same with net zero and uh, and all of those things but then if you really look into it you kind of see, yeah, actually, if you think more deeply about it, there are real problems. And again, you know, 
what is evil does not come wrapped in a badge saying what is evil. You know, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. You know, that this is the thing with evil. You know, that we need to be switched on. We need to know our Bibles well, because otherwise we could be deceived that, you know, what we are going for is actually not good. And, you know, I think this is why God has given us the Bible and God helps us with the Holy Spirit to think and to, to really, you know, um, reason these things. Because it, it's so easy, I think, to, to go along with and be deceived. And, you know, no one, I think, who supports some of the bad things going on thinks that they are supporting anything evil. But if you really think about it, you think, look at the harm that this is going to cause. You know, this is not good. And, um, and this is the problem. And you know, Paul finishes this section. It's no surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. It's not a surprise, you know, that Satan works in that way. So do, so do the people you know, who he, he has working for him. They masquerade. They, they are trying to do what's good. As with every, um, you know, think about every tyrant in the, the uh, 20th century, you know, the communist leaders who killed millions, but were just trying to create a perfect utopian society. It was just for the greater good. And this is the problem with the greater good. It actually enables great evil to happen. You know, that uh, Satan's servants masquerade as agents of righteousness. Um, but Paul does finish. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And that's the good uh, thing, a good good place to, to leave this, which is that God is not mocked. You know, God sees what what um, what people do, not just what people say. And God sees the way that we treat others and God will judge. Um, and and actually uh, we can leave that judgment to him because he will judge fairly. And uh, I think, you know, soon enough, I think God is going to take away the um, those who have been masquerading as servants of righteousness and uh, perhaps put in charge people of integrity and people who actually want to do what is right and best for the people of, of this country and other countries too. Um, so, you know, I, I think that is, um, that's the good news, that God cares about this injustice and that God sees even if many people don't right at the moment. So let's finish now. Let's take a moment to pray and ask for God's help in um, in uh, all, all of the things that we've been talking about. And so, Heavenly Father, we do, um, as we finish, Lord, we do recognise so many of the problems in the world at the moment. And um, speaking for myself, I know I'm at a loss so much of the time to know how to respond to this. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and courage to do what is right. We pray that you would bring real change across our politics, across our elites, our media, uh, for them to do and promote what is right. And uh, we pray, Lord, that um, those who are masquerading as servants of righteousness would be exposed and that you would put in place people who are genuinely wanting to do what is right and good. And we pray, Lord, finally for the church uh, with problems with safeguarding at the moment uh, we pray, Lord, that you would look after those who are genuinely victims, that those who have been causing abuse would um, be able to be uh, justly and righteously dealt with and uh, would come to true repentance themselves. And uh, we pray, Lord, that your message of sin and grace and repentance would be truly believed and 
um, proclaimed by the whole church and that many people would see and hear and believe. So we commit ourselves to you in this coming week and pray for your blessing, your help, your peace in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for joining me today. Just to let you know, if you'd like to support me, there's a buy me a coffee link. Uh, you can do that down below. Um, and uh, I really do appreciate that. I'm sort of freelance. Um, I don't have a regular uh, income. So, uh, yeah, I do appreciate that. And thanks so much to those who've supported me and who support me regularly uh, on that. I really, really uh, appreciate it. If you'd like to join in the conversation, as I've already mentioned, there's Telegram and there's the um, obviously YouTube comments. There's sacredmusingspod at gmail.com, the email address and um, the links are down below and um, yeah I think uh, anything else is down below so um, yeah hope to see you again uh, for the next podcast next week but in the meantime God bless take care <laughs>